G'day mate, Forty here. I just watched the movie Zone of Interest and it is based and red-pilled, but not as based and red-pilled as these movie ideas. I'm just going to give away for free. I don't need credit on this, right? You don't need to give me a writer's credit, a story idea credit, a producer credit. I don't need any money, but Zone of Interest, it, it inspired me. I think we, Hollywood needs to put out a, a new time travel movie and we could have former Secretary of State John Kerry travel back in time to Auschwitz in 1944 and sit down with Rudolf Hoss, 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 Rudolf Hoss, the commandant of Auschwitz, and explain to him how bad it is for the environment for this cremating and, and gassing of Jews, that he's just creating global warming that is going to make generations suffer, and that instead he should uh, persuade the commandant instead of like gassing Jews he should instead like drown them or, or club them to death and that way he saves the world from global warming and then I've got a second brilliant you know, Oscar winning idea that, that just could completely revolutionize Hollywood and I see elite Israeli and Hamas fighters alright trans fighters transgender fighters get together and work together Right, to save the world from zombies or to save the world from aliens. I mean, think how powerful that would be. Like, what a, what a message of radical love and inclusion if you could see transgender elite Israeli and Hamas fighters just working together to save the world from some, some common enemy. I mean, this is something everyone could, could get behind. This, this is a winner. But anyway, I, the zone of interest... Right, this this new movie highly talked about. It's not it's not an exciting or entertaining movie. Right, the most dramatic thing that happens in the movie is that the husband and wife Rudolf Haas and his wife have an argument about him moving, and she wants to keep the family at Auschwitz because they've created this beautiful life for themselves at Auschwitz. They've got a garden, they've got a pool. Right, they're finally living the quality of life that they deserve. But for the first three minutes of the movie, the screen is just black and playing ominous music. And you never see directly, you know, horrific scenes of the Holocaust, but you just hear gunshots and yelling and, and pleading at times going on in, in the background. So let's get a little bit, a uh, little background on this. A man who had a long history inside of the German military and inside of the SS. He was a man who was trusted greatly by Heinrich Himmler and he would create and make Auschwitz the largest concentration camp. He transitioned the site to be a place where over one million people were killed inside of the gas chambers, and what shocked many was the fact he brazenly admitted his crimes in the Nuremberg trials. He was called to the war crimes trials as a defence witness for Ernst Kautenbrunner, and his testimony would shock the whole world. He admitted in front of the world's media that, I commanded Auschwitz until the 1st of December 1943, and estimate that at least two and a half million victims were executed and exterminated there by gassing and burning, and at least another half million succumbed to starvation and disease, making a total of about three million dead. This figure represents about 70 or 80% of all persons sent to Auschwitz as prisoners, the remainder having been selected and used for slave labour in the concentration camp industries. Included among the executed and burned were approximately 20,000 Russian prisoners of war, who were delivered at Auschwitz in Wehrmacht transports, operated by regular Wehrmacht officers and men. 
The remainder of the total number of victims included about 100,000 German Jews and great numbers of citizens from the Netherlands, France, Belgium, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Greece or other countries. We executed about 400,000 Hungarian Jews alone at Auschwitz in the summer of 1944. Hearst would later change his estimates, but he would live a double life. Despite being brutal and barbaric inside of his death camp, he would finish at the end of the day and would come home to his villa where he would live with his wife and children. But what did his wife know? All right, this is the powerful part of the movie. It just shows the completely ordinary lives that the commandant of Auschwitz and his wife carried on. And, and this is true, all right? We don't tend to care very much about our groups, right? 29,000 Gazans approximately have died as a result of the Israeli bombing and incursion of, of Gaza. And I don't lose sleep about it because my group, Jews, are in this life and death struggle, it seems like, with, with Palestinians. And so I, I just don't care that much about the suffering of our groups. And this is the human tendency. We primarily care about our own comfort and our own group. And uh, we just don't care much about our groups. And what did she know about the evils of Auschwitz? Join us today as we look at the wife of the Commandant of Auschwitz. And as always, to support our channel on a daily basis to the prisoners. But her, she is before the Second World War broke out had been rather outspoken and was a political activist. But on the 17th of August 1929, he married a woman named Hedvig Hensel. She was 21 when the pair married, and they had met as they were part of the Ottoman League, and this was a political group who promoted a lifestyle in Germany where they should get back to the land, and should start farming and fight the changing urbanisation in the country. The pair were both outspoken, and through this they met and fell in Ironic that both uh, Zionism and National Socialism have this ethic of uh, getting back to the land, right? So there's nothing, and quite a few members of my channel, right, have this ethic of we have to get back to the land. You walk around in cities and you see just millions of people stacked up like useless cordwood. We, we need to get back to the land. There's something about living on the land, being in touch with, with nature that will you know, save our civilization. Love. At the time, Hedvig would never have believed that she would marry a man who was in control of the largest concentration camp and death site of the Second World War, and that she would marry a man who was a flagrant mass murderer. The couple would have five children, three daughters and two sons, and what was shocking was that their youngest daughter was actually born within the Auschwitz complex, meaning she was born at the very place that her father inflicted such suffering. At the time following their marriage, Hearst would join the Nazi party, and he rose to prominence inside of the SS and went to the very top and became a trusted adjutant to Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS. Himmler respected Hearst, and as he was a trusted man, he was sent to Poland to look at a site in Western Poland, which would have been used as a place... Okay, so this movie is called Zone of Interest. It's an uh, absolute masterpiece. Interest is a 2023 film by the director Jonathan Glazer. It's based on... Martin Amos's uh, fictional account of, of Auschwitz in 2014, so 10 years ago. And the film is easily the most disturbing historically filmed movie that I've seen since Detroit. Catherine Bigelow had attempted to reconstruct the actual events that took place in the late 1960s. And I found the central hour the most disturbing horror movie 
because it was based on what actually happened. When we come to the zone of interest and Jonathan Glazer's interpretation of Martin Amos' novel, he has deliberately done something which many would not. What Jonathan Glazer has done is spent three years of very careful research, working with the museums in Auschwitz and elsewhere to try and piece together what the actual life of the Hosses would be. The Commandant of Auschwitz and his wife, Hedwig. And it makes it more... So his wife, she, she, uh, she gives garments, right, taken from the, the presumably largely Jewish prisoners. She gives them to the servants that limits them, just one each. And when, when the servants displease her, she says, don't you know that my, my, you know, my husband could have you, your ashes and, and the ashes of your family you know, scattered all over the countryside? more disturbing a film because Auschwitz is only in the background. You only see it from the odd watchtower. The fences obscure the main buildings and only very occasionally do you see the concentration camp in any form. Now, Glazer has commented that this film is really about today. Although it deals with a terrible period of human history, he's actually asking us to reflect on what we take for granted now. In the novel, Martin Amis cites W.H. Auden's line of poetry, alas, is said less and less, that we stop regretting, ignoring things that should trouble us. In the film, it is very clearly focused on the home life of the Hosses. Right. If this is an accurate portrayal of how most people live their lives, which I believe it is, then instead of having our worldview anchored in the Enlightenment, we need to anchor our worldview in a traditional tribal worldview, recognize the tribal nature of most people and recognize that the more cohesive the society all right, the higher the social trust, all right, that, that largely depends on the more people have in common with each other. Right, when you recognize that this is the reality of human nature, then you want to create societies where people have a great deal in common with each other and you don't venerate or bless or praise or try to create more and more diversity because diversity means that we have less and less in common with our fellow citizens, which is an absolute disaster. From a cast which is drawn almost exclusively from European actors with no real presence in Western, by which I mean British and American English-speaking films. It carries an almost drama documentary, an almost completely documentary film. We can't know what the Hosses said, but the careful research and the reconstruction of the Hosses' house is actually central to what goes on. For Hedwig, she has achieved her goal. Auschwitz for her and the villa that they have with their extended garden is her living space. It is what she has wanted to achieve. And if she has to forget the tragedy playing out the other side of the garden wall, she will do that. One or two reviewers have asked 
is this possible today? Could we be as complicit? And you don't have to go very far. Um, Richard Thalia, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics relatively recently, and uh, Cass uh, Sunstein in their book Nudge makes the point that collectively we want to be accepted and want to be part of the majority. And therefore, if you look what happened in the late 1930s, what people were regretting, they were forgetting. Okay, let's uh, say, let's say hello to our old friend, Elliot Blatt. Blessings, Elliot. Ah, blessings, Luke. How are you doing? Can you hear me? I'm, I'm blessed by your presence, bro. I'm glad I can bless. Hold on, I have to mute something. One second, please. Okay, okay. good to talk to you again. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, the absence is not my fault. Yeah, I, I'm the one to blame, bro. You didn't yeah. leave me, I left you. Yeah, I'm a, a bit stung, a bit, a bit chafed by this whole experience. Now, are you back on a regular basis, or are you still uh, at home? No, I'm... Uh... This is this is this is a special 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 occasion. So there may not be another one for a month. So we need to oh, God. we need to make this this afternoon special. <laughs> I don't like it over door, dude. Oh, well, um, well, I'm glad I can be here to share this rare blessing. So, <laughs> um, I didn't have any particular reason to call in other than. Just to say hello. Yeah. Have, have you seen Zone of Interest? Do you have any interest in seeing Zone of Interest? Is this a movie in theaters currently, or is it a Netflix? Uh, both. It's both online and in theaters. It's about no, the commandant of Auschwitz and his family, and it just shows their completely mundane lives. Doesn't that sound <laughs> exciting? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Claire actually had a similar theme. She, she had, like, this video of this... Um, executioner in uh saudi arabia and basically his job was to lop off heads but, and he got carpal tunnel yeah but it, you know it, he still had sort of like mundane life to lead nonetheless but you know his job title <laughs> can you imagine that yeah i mean I, I i i if it could be an honored honored job in society. Like the, the people who used to lop off heads with a sword. I mean, they they would in England they would often boat them over from France. Uh, oh yeah. It, it, and yeah, it was a very prestigious because you you don't want someone making a mess of things. Yeah. Right? You know, you want, <laughs> you want it. A, you want it done right. Right. You want a sharp sword. You want one one swipe. One one swipe. Clean. 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 Yeah. So many people don't take sufficient pride in their work. You know, I think no. you would be an excellent executioner. Oh yeah, right, exactly. You would take yeah. great pride in your work. Oh, uh, I'd be, relish it too, wouldn't I? You know, you'd be one swipe, Elliot. <laughs> oh, I, I consider it like a gift. I don't know how. I, I honestly don't know how. I, you know, you know. I, I guess I, I've come to terms with being okay with capital punishment, but. God, I could not do it. I mean, I just simply could not do it. And I, I'm not the guy you want lopping off heads, and I'm not the guy you want checking the engine before the plane takes off. Takes off. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about my movie idea 
we go back then, John Kerry, back in time to meet with the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Haas, in 1944 and convince him to stop gassing and cremating Jews because it's bad for the environment. So they should instead, like, beat them to death or drown them. Yeah, the carbon, bro. Yeah, the carbon, man. The carbon, man. The carbon footprint. What about the planet? And he, like, he saves the world from global warming mm-hmm. by, you know, getting to Rudolf Hess, host, Hoss, Hoss, Rudolf Hess. I was think it'll character. play. I think it'll play, especially in Hollywood. I think, uh, you know. And what about transgender IDF and Hamas fighters joining together to fight off aliens or zombies? That too, Luke. That too. So, I do have a, a minor story to tell today. Lessons. I um, I have many stories to tell, but I'm only gonna. Uh, I'll just talk. Tell you what happened today. I woke up. I feel I was feeling a bit out of sorts. You know, just not, not me. Not all there. You know. Mm. So I, uh, I thought I was gonna just walk it off. Go for a walk. This is like six thirty in the morning. Um, I'm not gonna, and I haven't drunk coffee for a week, by the way. Oh, way to go! Yeah, and it, it was not even like a decision. I it was not even a plan. It was just like I ran out of coffee, and I woke up and I didn't feel like I needed a cup of coffee, so I just didn't bother. I had a cup of tea, but. Um, the whole desire for coffee just seems to disappear, which is inconceivable. This, you know, two weeks ago, I, I would have thought this to be uh, inconceivable. It just seemed to have happened uh, without my doing anything. So anyway, I woke up this morning feeling out of sorts. And so I decided I'm going to go for a walk, you know, just see if I can get the blood moving, try and feel better. And so I just start walking. I start walking. And it's a beautiful morning. It's like a 10 out of 10 day. You know, it's just, it's kind of early, early, early spring, you know, and the birds are just going bananas, you know, on, on my little nature trail. And it was just so enjoyable, you know, and the birds are chirping and I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm feeling better and getting more and more energy. And uh, I, I just, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to see what I can do. I'm going to, I'm going to push myself to the limit today. You know, it's Sunday, no work. So I keep walking and walking and walking. So I ended up doing 11 miles. Oh, wow. 22,000 steps. Oh, I didn't yeah, I get the steps here. Um, right here, I'll tell you exactly if you like. I'm not, I'm not in suspense. I'm uh, hanging on. <laughs> you keep me hanging on. Yeah. Oh, no, they're giving me, why can't I get the info? Okay, it was 27,000 steps, 11.41 miles. Wow. That's considerable. That's considerable. You should be proud of that, Elliot. I, 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 I am proud of it. Um, and so, you know, I, um, it, took, it took almost four hours to complete this. I mean, it was a lot of, it's a lot of walking, you know. And I just, but, you know, it just sort of, um, you know, you know, when I was younger, I could knock out 11, 11 miles and not even think about it. Right. But this was yeah. like, a, I, this was like a, you know, I was wrestling death itself. It was, it was a grueling event. For me. <laughs> was it up and down? It was mostly flat. I strategically avoid hills because I know that just, 
I don't want to be demoralized in any any sense. You know, there, there's some hills are unavoidable, but I deliberately take the flattest, easiest path. You know, because with I with your walk and with your life too. I noticed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, 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 I just want to be be smooth. I, I just want to be this constant river of love and inclusion. You know. So anyway, I do my 11 miles, and and I get home, and I had. I had a whole list of things I was ticking off that I was going to complete today, you know, because I didn't really intend on walking 11 miles this morning, but I was bedridden. I got yeah. back. I was like bedridden yeah. for three hours. Like I couldn't do yeah. anything. And so now I'm, I'm sort of in catch up mode. And, um, my father, know, my father a... emphasized that point to me. You can't accomplish anything taking cognitive power after you're physically exhausted. So he would always leave his four or five mile run to the to just before dinner. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but I have to say, like walking in the morning, you know, on a sunny day with the birds chirping, I mean, it was really just magical. Um, I don't know if you get many birds down in LA. There's not many trees in LA, so you might not have many birds. But um, I don't know, I, I, but I think it's I, I've been I'm sort of in this glow of uh, accomplishment. That's the upside it's, of all of this. And so like, you I sure. feel like I feel like I scaled the Matterhorn in my own way, my own personal Matterhorn. You so did. You just... were you were no bottom, bro. <laughs> now you know what? I didn't. Okay, you had mentioned bottoms. You in said that I was stream. being a total bottom. Yeah, but you had mentioned bottoms prior to that. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have just said that. Oh, I thought you just said that out of nowhere. Ex Nilo that Luke's a total bottom. No, you said something about bottoms and I am a bottom or something about bottoms. And uh, I just threw off this one off line in a chat un, you know, I, half serious. If, you know, just I was just kind of riffing on the words that were being spoken in the stream. And it is nothing that I meant. It was like so tongue in cheek. And then this sort of blew up to be this mini scandal within the quote unquote community. <laughs> uh, so anyway. So how are you uh, dealing? I take it back. How are you dealing with the 29,000 dead Gazans? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Like, Obviously, I don't like it, but I have such this sort of ongoing frustration with a the Palestinians in general, and then b the community that sort of surrounds and supports everything that a Palestinian does. These people I can't stand either. So, yeah, at the other hand, I don't want to be like you know I'm basically a humanitarian so I, I don't want to relish the deaths of these people um at the same time these people seem to relish the idea of genociding jews and so it's like it's a real ethical quandary for me like I, I just don't like the moral asymmetry, right? If you're just talking about making peace with Israelis, 
yes, this would be a moral outrage, but you're not, right? At least the leadership's not. It's always death to Israel, death to Jews. And so it just makes it really hard for me to be empathetic, even though all of my sort of instincts are to be empathetic. Does that make sense? Uh, would you would you prefer a male boss or a female boss? Excellent question. The old me would have preferred a female boss, but the new me would prefer a male boss. And not only that, I don't think women should be allowed to work. Oh God, God forbid, disavow. <laughs> that's how. That's how. Like profoundly, my. Uh, thinking on this has evolved, you know, so, or devolved, depending on your perspective. So why? Why do you prefer a male boss to a female boss? Because male bosses can cut to the chase and do what needs to be done without the sentimentality that female bosses bring. But male bosses aren't as nurturing. They aren't nurturing. It's painful working for like a really good, effective male boss, right? Someone who's actually on top of their game, yeah, and not not uh, not accepting of any bullshit. Excuse my language. Um, these are the people that make effective companies. Uh, female bosses, sort of like to nourish, as you say, or nurturing, they like, they put up with sort of subpar. It's very funny. They'll put up with subpar performance, but then they'll snap. You yeah. know, they're just, uh, they're not, they're less predictable than a, than a male boss. And sometimes it's like the predictability uh, actually makes it clear about what your um, role is and what you need to do, what you need to, to accomplish to not be the recipient of wrath, you know? And once you know those rules, you can just get your done, your work done effectively and efficiently. Um, so yeah, this notion that female bosses are somehow better is not true because they, they lead to a sort of miasma, like a company becomes a, a um, uh, a, a miasma of um, just false starts in a just chaotic decision making, just not clear. But I have to say, like male bosses can go over the line and be inflexible and therefore not pivot when they need to pivot. So yeah, yeah. I don't we're talking say about simple. we're talking about some gross generalizations. We're talking about tendencies. We recognize for every cliche that we say about male or female bosses that there are, you know, a great deal of exceptions. But uh, who do you think is more likely to take offense at something that you might regard as trivial, a male boss or a female boss? Mm. Well, my first instinct is to say female bosses. But then upon reflection... And thinking about my actual work experience, I find that a lot of male bosses are uh, prone to paranoia. 
Have you ever worked for somebody who was paranoid? Yes. And I don't detect, I haven't experienced like a paranoid female boss. Yeah. And paranoia is, it's hard to be around. <laughs> it creates a lot of stress, you know. Uh, what about taking, I can things, taking huh? things personally? Who's more likely well, to take things personally? Uh, yeah, female bosses will take things personally, but a paranoid person will take everything personally. Um, mm, Who's more likely to micromanage? Mm, male like, bosses. Male boss? Oh, that's not my not my experience. It's like that's it's not your experience. It's it's an extension of nurturing, right? I think female bosses are a lot like mothers and male bosses are a lot like fathers. So female bosses tend to be more nurturing, which also comes with the downside of, of smothering. And smothering and micromanaging, I think, are synonyms. Like, who's more likely to point. say, copy me point. on every email. I, I agree. Let you're me right. know everything that you're doing. All right, that's much more Ooh. likely to be a female boss than a, than a male boss. I I agree. I think you're right. And I'm wrong. The more I think about it, you're exactly right. Um, male bosses are more interested in the actual outcome. They're not so much interested in the sort of day-to-day process. They're more transactional and female bosses are more relational. Yeah, relational. And I've been fired by a female boss just because she didn't like me. Yeah. Who's yeah. more likely to fire you just because they don't like you, a male boss or a female boss? It's a female boss. Yeah. Sure. You make somebody uncomfortable. And, right? and who's, going to, who's going to reward and even demand conformity more likely, a male boss or a female boss? Obviously, you know, females prefer people coloring you know, within the lines. They, they have a much mm. greater need for conformity. That's why female students tend to do better at school because they're much more likely to color within the lines. Yeah, that's definitely female bosses as well. I, I think that was my problem that was, because I was, I, I don't, I didn't, and I still don't really dress particularly well. You know, I dress kind of sloppily and my hair's often a bit messy. And this rubs. Yeah, who's that more like, who is that li- more likely to upset, a male or a female boss? Yeah, a female boss for sure. Yeah. yeah. Who's more likely to be upset that you don't participate in company extracurricular activities? Yeah, totally female boss. A male boss is, that's truly results oriented will just make it clear what needs to be done and not give and a, just, and not, not give care how it about gets anything done. else, yeah. You know. And that's the environment I prefer to work. I've never had a male boss say, copy me on every single email that you send. No, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I've, I've never had that happen ever in any case. But, uh, you know, money talks, bullshit walks. So if you can deliver the goods, you know, a male boss doesn't care how you got there. Because they're, the, they're not there to make friends. They're not there to, you know, create a relationship any of this stuff right they just see that yeah. the outcome and 
in a way, there's a certain peace in that. Yeah, who's more likely to say, we want you to bring your whole self to work? <laughs> and be, who's more likely to then get offended if you ever dared to do that? Exactly. They want you, yeah. Now, feel, you know, I've told you my stories about my problems with funeral bosses. That's why I, I thought you'd be the perfect person to yeah. talk to, like, Who's more likely to say, you know, this little thing that you're doing, it's, it's, you got to cut that out, right? It's, it's... So I had a female, I probably told you this, but I had this female boss that um, we just didn't gel interpersonally. And she was a bit of an imposter. And she could tell that I knew that she was a bit of an imposter. And, but I never really said anything, but there were certain, you know, facial expressions that kind of betrayed the truth. And so once during a meeting, uh, she interrupted me while I was giving my report and I sort of called her out on it. And then right in the middle of the meeting, she just stands up and gives me the finger. <laughs> so who's more likely like, to do that? Yeah. Male or female like eight, eight people at least, right? Just, she stands up and gives me the full on finger, you know, and uh, which was just like so unbelievably out of line in this particular setting. And yet she received no, you know, no, uh, there's no blowback that came to her that I was aware of for this uh, basically atrocity. It's she came like, she was basically almost like pulled out a handgun, you know, it was like that bad, you know, and nothing came of it. You know, like women have this aura of, of impunity and invincibility and untouchability that they could just say and do things that men simply cannot do. <laughs> Question funny. in the chat, Chad, how often do female bosses manipulate their employees through erotic power? I have never once seen a female boss try to manipulate male employees through erotic power. It, virtually all the female bosses I know have been without eros. Uh, I believe that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Female bosses would just, and they would like have breakdowns, you know, full on emotional breakdowns. <laughs> it's like, uh, which, which is intensely awkward. I don't know. Uh, much I, more into team building, like team building exercises. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're, they're. I'm not feeling the love, you know. They'll say. <laughs> Or, you know, all of their speech is somehow feeling-based. Like, I'm not feeling this right now, you know. <laughs> or much more likely to have speech codes, explicit or implicit, but to actually enforce them. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I worked in real estate once. I tell you this, like three months in real estate. And this, I worked for this paranoid lunatic, you know, who I hated, who I would not mind watching be beheaded i mean I hate this oh guy. god forbid i hate this guy so much you know at the same time you know there's it was something about the authoritarian nature of the way he ran the place that it did actually function efficiently um but it i hated myself every minute i was there yeah i noticed men are much more comfortable with hierarchy and and mm -hmm. male bosses in general and women bosses much more want to create a sense of 
set some sense of egalitarianism that goes hand in hand with much more cliquishness so that you know other people who get into their clique are favored while i notice male bosses are just much more transactional and results oriented yeah i had a female boss and she had like a um i don't know what the word is it's not a mole or a freckle it's bigger than a freckle it's like a a, just a facial, um, what's the word, impairment or disfigurement, like a, mm-hmm. uh, just a giant discoloration by her lip. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was like an eye magnet. It was so yes. like off-putting, right? I couldn't help but look at it, you know? And um, just the presence of this, it it sort of distracted my attention while talking to her because I was trying not to look at it. I was trying not to have any reaction to it. I was trying to just not see the elephant in the room, you know, but the elephant was right there, always like wagging its trunk at me. And I think this unease that this thing caused created this friction between us that ultimately led to my being uh, axed. Because I couldn't like suppress my discomfort. Have you ever had that situation? Uh, probably. I, I can't recall one right now. But, but I mean, disfiguring marks on someone's face are highly discombobulating. And, and people who commit murder are dramatically much more likely to have you know some kind of disfiguring scar uh, or something on their face than than normal. Like it, it's it's a freaky thing. Yeah, otherwise she was pretty attractive, but she had like this Achilles heel, this flaw, you know? And I wasn't trying to, I just didn't want to be, it's not like I was looking at her in any way that wasn't professional. It was just, it was a fact of her face, you know, that was hard to, that couldn't be ignored. And God, what a curse that must be to have that. So all the, all the teachers that I had the closest uh, relationships with were male teachers, like the teachers who regarded me the most highly because the, the, many of my male teachers noticed that I challenged them more than any other student they'd ever had. And they said that partly in admiration, you know, and a large part in annoyance, but for my female teachers getting challenged or my female bosses getting challenged was not something they enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Women are definitely in an authoritarian mindset when they're, when they are um, giving instruction. So they're, they're basically, it's the mother child dynamic that they have and they don't want to take any lip from their children or their employees. And they, and that's sort of the pet pattern from which they operate. And um, they're all lovey-dovey until you step out of line. And then it's like, <laughs> you yeah. know, hell gets, you know, un, 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 uh, you know the gates of hell become opened. Right. <sighs> men, men, to be a man is to generally enjoy competition and to understand that there are rules for competition. Uh, women generally don't like competition. And so when they are forced to compete, they, there aren't any rules. Like as as a male, we're raised with rules for how to compete since a very early age. But when women unexpectedly find themselves in in a competitive mode, 
they tend to to not follow any rules. Yeah, you know, years ago, I, I went on this reading binge when I was still an active reader, and I read Tacitus, mm-hmm. like the whole works of Tacitus, and Tac- Tacitus <laughs> observed that women that rose to power in the Roman Empire were the most sadistic in their, you know, in their um, dispensation of punishments. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, men could show, like Caesar was actually quite forbearing with his enemies. It was sort of led to it, which actually was a, a feature of his um, personality to allow him to rule because he would sort of co-opt his, his competition and get them to fight for him. Uh, and he was, he was not particularly punitive. But Tacit have observed that women were generally um, very sadistic in their, uh, when they had power. And I, it makes sense to me. They don't like to be crossed. And, and what about female teachers versus male teachers? I had many wonderful female teachers but uh, yeah, overall, I, I did better in school and I had better relations with my male teachers. Uh, that sounds true to me. Um, I remember being like 13 years old and having a uh, English teacher in high school. And there was definitely like some personal animus between us that was kind of emotional in nature. Female um, teacher. Female teacher, yeah. And this never happened between male teachers. Yeah. Male teachers were just very, um, just dispassionate, you know, and authoritative. And I had, I, I had a really, I had a really good, I was pretty lucky looking back on it. I mean, I, you know, about my, my high school experience was actually pretty good, I think, compared to most because. I have a lot of fond memories of high school, both teachers and personal, interpersonally with friends and things. Um, would, would you get into power struggles with your teachers? That happened to me a lot, but particularly with female teachers, but also men. Maybe not except for this one particular one, um, but it's not worth, it's not worth lamenting. So I, I see similar, similar, things going on between female teachers and female bosses versus male teachers and male bosses, because I think the, the number one most important factor here is that there are significant differences between men and women in how they operate, whether they are bosses or, or parents or um, you know, athletes, that uh, the male-female difference is a significant one. So do you think uh, female teachers and female bosses, very similar psychology, very similar sociology yeah i mean i think the paradigm is obviously like women operate from a familial like the familiar familial uh relational relational yeah well yeah mother child familial and men operate from like a militaristic or a you know hierarchical uh dispassionate approach and um I don't know. Men just kind of, I think, naturally fall into line. They just naturally can accept hierarchy. It's like this sort of recessive gene that gets triggered when you're in like a very uh, stark hierarchical 
environment, even if you're not particularly militarily inclined. You just kind of recognize the pattern and then you uh, adhere to it. And when did you get your first male teacher? Do you remember the grade? Um, yes. Uh, probably sixth or seventh grade. Yeah. And out of all your teachers, who were you closest to? Do you remember one, one or two particular teachers? I had a history teacher that I was pretty close to on a personal basis. And then I had math teachers that were, um, I found to be like really exhilarating as a child, as a, as a high school student. Like, um, I, I found math really enjoyable in high school. It was such a, like, it was such a pleasure, you know? Uh, and recently, I you know I've started looking up somehow these math problem videos come up on my YouTube feed. Have you watched any of these? No. No, I know. I mean, most people are like really traumatized by math, but there was always things that I didn't feel like I learned well enough in high school, and now I'm sort of kind of relearning them, just as a sense of nostalgia and vengeance <laughs> i i just want to sort of fill in the gaps because i feel like i'm i feel like i missed a few strategic like a few key concepts in my math career quote unquote that had i mastered them earlier and not missed them and not misunderstood them i would have just been much better uh i i just would have like had had much more success in the math field so anyway, I've been watching these videos and they're just kind of really relaxing to watch, like how to solve particular types of algebra t problems or calculus problems. And uh, it's uh, super, <laughs> it's, I, can't, I can't believe that I'm like watching and enjoying it with such pleasure and almost like a, a reverie. Like there is something very satisfying about solving a math problem, you know? Uh, yeah, that's awesome. What what else have you been listening to online? Uh, you know, I'm listening to less and less stuff online. Like, um, you know, I've basically written off uh, Charles. What's his name? Charles? Moskowitz? No. Charles. Oh, Charles. Chuck Johnson. Charles Johnson. Okay. So I've written him off. I, I actually think he's mentally ill. And... I don't listen to him anymore. I, I don't think he speaks with any authority or credibility. I'm still listening to Richard, but Richard's basically, you know, just kind of a, you know, milk toast cultural critic. But same time, I just have sort of this like residual um, habit of listening to Richard. So I yeah. just keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. Out of nostalgia for nothing yeah. else, you know. I, I don't know why. Maybe this will come to the end. But I become less interested in my own opinions or the opinions of other people. You know, I, 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 I'm just sort of questioning the value of like, what does it mean to have an opinion and why, why does it care? Why does it really matter? You know, like who cares, you know, if I have the right HBD opinion, does it really move the needle anywhere? <laughs> you know, is it important? No. It's not important. And, you know, it's fun entertainment, but like, 
I'm trying to, I, I don't know. I think paper, we might be on the same page. We might be, be sort of undergoing similar, um, uh, you know, similar sort of emotional uh, transformation or sorts. You know, I don't know what's really going on with you or not, but you definitely seem to have taken less interest in streaming of late. And, you know, I, I don't know the reasons. I don't know if you want to discuss them or not, but I have sort of, been less interested in consuming streams when I used to be a rather fanatical consumer of live streams. Like Sticks Hexenhammer, like I tried to listen to Sticks Hexenhammer uh, like a week ago, and I couldn't, I couldn't even bear it for like two minutes. <laughs> you know, it just didn't resonate with me with all. It's not a matter of agreeing or disagreeing. It's just like these subjects seem so trivial and banal and just not worth mentioning. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. There was a time and a place when there was exciting intellectual debate, but there are just other things in life that are worth moving on to, such as making money. Yeah, making money, uh, which I have been you know, working on. I've been working on my own sort of sideline business project, and I've been making good progress on it. And um, yeah, it just feels like I've kind of moved on to a new chapter, and... You know, the element, it's sort of slowly taking root, whatever this new chapter is going to be. But, um, yeah, the opinion sphere is not, not, not engaging for me anymore. And how much is, I, hmm? go, go ahead, finish your thought. Well, I, I enjoy those times. It's like I say this with a certain amount of uh, melancholy. because Nostalgia, too. Yeah, I enjoy that. <laughs> it was those years were great years. Those were fun years. It was really like, I really looked forward to tuning into live streams and I got a lot of enjoyment out of them. And uh, I feel bad that I just can't have that same level of pleasure that I once had from them. Uh, how much of this is a realization that the some of the material that you're taking in was feeding back into a negative cycle in your life that it was affecting how you would try to make your way through the real world um that's a really good question <clears throat> it's hard to say i mean the insights that i feel like i've accrued through that period have been really valuable to me. I feel like I'm making much better decisions. I feel like I'm allowed to think in ways that I wasn't previously allowed to think, right? So that's, and I'm allowed to make some pretty based decisions, shall we say, that I heretofore would never have been able to make. <clears throat> on, the, on the flip side, to your point, like, yes, this, style conversation is a bit negative and it does sort of inspire a certain type of fatalism that can be uh, self-fulfilling. And so, and I want to stay away from that, you know? So I, I don't know. It, it, it's a good question. I, and I'm still kind of puzzling my way through it, but I mean, how long have you been in quite acquainted? It sounds like you've been acquainted with these ideas for much longer than I have. 
these HBD type of ideas. Oh, yeah, since uh, 1997. That's when I read oh, okay. The Bell Cove. Okay, but when did you contact meet like Steve Saylor? Oh, I started reading Steve Saylor probably 2004, something like that. But I was I was reading people like him between 1997 and 2004. Hmm. I mean, I hadn't even heard his name until like 2016, 17. And I was I was a bit dubious, you know. Like I often say, I was an NPR contributor until, up until 2014. <laughs> I was pretty far gone. <laughs> but, wow. but now, you know, I look around and obviously, you know, you look and see what's become of San Francisco. And you can just see how prophetic these, these thoughts and ideas were. And they, they actually do seem to be manifesting. Um at least in my life. I mean, San Francisco is so done. It's just, it's a shadow of its former self. And, you know, the reasons can be traced to sort of HBD and or drug use. I mean, the drug problem here is so out of control. Uh, what about the echo chamber effect? in right-wing streaming and podcasting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 sorry. Uh, just trying to get my thoughts together. Yeah, you here. walked 11 miles today. You can be forgiven. For, uh, uh, and, yeah, and a man yeah. of your age, too. I mean, I, I, exactly. I basically, you know, I'm basically Bruce Jenner. Pardon the pun. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, the echo chamber, I mean, here's what I see. You know, I have a lot of sympathies for the right and the dissident right. But I do sort of get irritated with this sort of obsession with Jews and not the appropriate level of concern with Muslims that is, uh, to me, more pressing. It seems like people do get obsessed with Jews in a way that it's not healthy. And they don't, I think, pay attention to, just to preserve your stream, other Middle Eastern uh, ethnicities yeah. that are actually making, creating havoc in uh, European countries. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm all for, like you say, you know, like I'm all for criticizing any group when they... You know, step out of line, but this, I don't know, the criticism of Jews on the right just seems to be a bit excessive to me. Yep. Okay, Elliot, good to catch up with okay, you, bro. bro. All right. Blessings. Shalom, blessings. Shalom. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Okay. Uh, Richard Spencer had some thoughts on Vladimir Putin's missed opportunity. Know your audience. That is a maxim that is essential for every politician, public speaker, actor, corporate executive making a pitch, etc., etc. That is, before you even start speaking, you need to think about what your audience's preconceptions are, what their desires are, what their biases are, 
what jokes land, what jokes are going to be offensive, etc., etc., etc. I have heard a number of people defend Vladimir Putin on the basis of, oh, isn't it amazing that he has this encyclopedic, or I should probably say archival knowledge of the Russian past, etc. Joe Biden couldn't do that. He's senile. Well, that might be true. Uh, but the fact is, if you're going to communicate persuasively or more sinisterly, if you're going to engage in propaganda, you have to know whom you are speaking to. I thought Putin's two-hour interview with Tucker Carlson was an absolute disaster on that basis. He was speaking to Russians. He was speaking to Russian historians, in fact. I don't think your average Russian gives two shits about 1134 and how Russia wasn't to blame for this dispute and a contract was signed and Russia acted in good faith, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure his eyes are going to glaze over the minute someone talks like this. Now, let me give an example of what he could have done. Now, I don't necessarily support this in the sense that I am not on the side of Russia in this conflict, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're speaking to Tucker Carlson, you are speaking to Americans, you're speaking to Twitter, you're especially speaking to conservative Americans, you're especially speaking to MAGA. So know what is going to appeal to them. If Vladimir Putin had said something to the effect, you know, oh, in, in Russia, we have men's hockey team and women's hockey team. Okay, so Richard goes for the theatrical critique of uh, Vladimir Putin because I think at, at essence, uh, Richard remains a, a the theatrical producer and a theatrical player. And uh, Vladimir Putin is just the most effective major power leader in, in the last 35 years. Uh, not terribly theatrical, just incredibly effective. So I made some notes on some of the topics there I was talking with Elliot Blatt about. I think work is often quite like a family. There are often similar dynamics that there's like a favored son, there's a, you know, a rebel, there's you know, people you know, forming alliances against others, triangulation. So I, I find just that, that metaphor of work as a family, that there's some use to it. Uh, differences between a mother and a father, I think, are a pretty good guide to understanding differences between male and female teachers and male and female bosses. So uh, men, I think, tend to be much more transactional and women tend to be much more relational. So if you are simply meeting the transactional needs of your boss, male bosses will be you know, much more at ease with that. Uh, women are much, will be more sensitive and more astute to emotions that are going on compared to, to men. They will be both, you know, quicker to take offense and quicker to read what's going on emotionally and to, to read people. I notice that women can just often undress my emotions very, very quickly in a way that, that uh, men rarely can. Before, like, he used to watch certain, like, things, right? And I'm like, Couple you never women. tell me to do this or to act this way or to dress this way. Like, mm -hmm. I want you to not see me as pure or, like, Oh, she's just a wife. You can't do that with her. Like, I want you to see me 
like I'm a slut. Like you I, want, you're like I want you to know that I'm a freak. Yes, like I will do whatever you want. I will like wear whatever I want, mm-hmm. like whatever you want. And I'm like, I want you to live your real life fantasies with me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I'd rather you do that than like do like hot stuff, like look up other women, right? Yeah. Right. Because I'm your wife. I can do whatever you want me to do, right? Period. And then he was like, you know, I didn't really thought about it that way, and I, I just thought you'd be uncomfortable with certain things. I'm like. Uncomfortable. Baby. I know. I'm I know my boundaries. Like right. I don't like when I'm when I talk about like kinks. Like there is nowhere I draw the line. So wait, but there's some certain kinks that'll look crazy though. Like people want to get like shat on and like nah, like fart like, on and stuff I will, like that. You I, into that? I'm into that. I will fart on you. I will fart on you. I will. You what? know those toilets in Dubai? Those toilet people. Yeah, I will the Dubai toilets. So- powerful. Powerful. Okay. What's, uh, what's going on here with the zone of Mason interest? Holocaust survivor once Maybe. wrote, Monsters exist, but they're too few in number to be truly dangerous. More dangerous are the common men, the functionaries ready to believe and to act without asking questions. We've seen a number of Levy's rare monsters portrayed in Holocaust films before, naturally brutal men who were at home in the Nazis' genocidal project. Commandant Goeth of Schindler's List being the most famous example. He was a man who seemed to take satisfaction in inflicting human suffering. It was a sport for him. But the zone of interest directed by Jonathan Glazer is not about men like Goeth. It's about common men, individuals who desired a peaceful, prosperous, and beautiful life, yet took part in the destruction of others who desired the exact same thing. The director has said that the movie's intention is to show our similarities to the perpetrators, not the victims. If we, the audience, can recognize how this family is able to live a joyful life in Eden next to the abyss of hell, we can prevent ourselves from falling into the same psychological traps. I don't know if we can prevent ourselves from falling in the same psychological traps, but it, that's what, what makes the movie so powerful, that Israeli Holocaust survivor who was troubled by nightmares for decades, all right, he went to Holland, seek treatment from one particular psychiatrist who prescribed LSD. And under the influence of LSD, he understood that in certain situations, he, him and his people would be the equivalent of concentration camp inmates. And in other situations he and his people would be the equivalent of concentration camp guards. It's not surprising that uh, much of the world is absolutely appalled by Israel's actions in Gaza, which have apparently led to the death of nearly 30,000 Gazans. So no one people is immutably uh, heroic or always victims. I want to begin by discussing the most outrageous examples of moral obliviousness. Many of them occur early in the story to establish the psychology of the characters. Mrs. Haas, a.k.a. the Queen of Auschwitz, is given the fur coat and lipstick of a prisoner, and she tries them on like she's in the fitting room of a Macy's. There is not a second of reflection. Mrs. Haas and the other Nazi wives discuss the items they've received and even share a laugh over the concealment methods they've run into. It's a game to them, and a very profitable one at that. But not to be outdone, the eldest boy stays up at night to analyze the dental gold extracted from murdered prisoners. Talk of extermination is not hidden in the household. Rudolph is very proud of his logistical achievements, and his wife enjoys the resulting increase in social status. When Hedwig's mother visits, she's well aware of what's taking place on the other side of the wall. Her daughter laments the ugliness of the wall itself, but breezes by its purpose. All she can do is put up vines to make it more aesthetically acceptable. The zone of interest is filled to the brim with these type of moments. They're usually pretty brief, the movie does not feature many extended scenes. It's a lot of short but powerful moments woven together to create a grand, demented quilt. The characters can't trick themselves into thinking that all that's going on is just forced labor. The sound of death is almost universally present. They can't hide from it. So how do they fight back? The number one method is overcompensation. 
The home can't simply be good enough. It can't be a temporary living space that they'll move on from once Rudolph is given new orders. It must be paradise. Hedwig tries to make it as beautiful as possible, a Garden of Eden. And when she's threatened with the possibility of relocation, she loses her damn mind. Because there's nothing wrong with the home and garden. Absolutely nothing. Not the gunshots, not the smoke, not the screams of women and children. It does not get any better, and the children cannot be deprived of it. When she makes this animated case to her husband, he's not the true target of her argument. It's herself. The Commandant's overcompensation is reflected not in the garden, but his work. He's obsessed with it. He's innovative. He wants the most efficient methods to make the numbers on the quarterly reports increase. Towards the end of the film, he even tells his wife that it's hard for him to concentrate on a party because he's thinking about the best way to gas everyone in attendance. And why would he think about anything else? There's nothing wrong with a job, and if there's nothing wrong with a job, I better be the best I can be. The effort is a testament to how important he needs to think the mission is. But no matter how much these characters try to overcompensate, they're unable to fully convince themselves and others of the fraudulent... Now, I noticed a similar thing happening in the pornography industry within 20 minutes of walking onto a porn set, right? It what was going on there will start to seem normal to you. ...in paradise they've created. Ashes still find their way into the flower beds. We see this with the sleepwalking of one of their daughters, the early departure of Hedwig's mother, and the most powerful example, Rudolph's heaving as the film ends. Deep down, very deep down, they know that they're participating in something too abhorrent to acknowledge directly. They have to. Again, we're not observing a family of psychopaths. So by embracing their closeness to evil, they deny its existence. If Hedwig lived next to the camp but refused to try in the clothing of the victims, she may be forced to examine her own hesitation. It's all in or nothing. The zone of interest goes beyond just the methods used by individuals to ignore atrocities. The movie also touches on the societal acceptance of the Holocaust. In other words, what narrative has possessed German society that would allow such horrors to take place? The contrast between the garden and the camp does a brilliant job exploring this. When Mrs. Haas attempts to talk her husband into letting her stay at the house, she argues that... They're living the life that Hitler wants Germans to live. They're pioneers of the East, enjoying the living space of a new, thriving German civilization. The idea she's referencing, Lebensraum, argued that to secure the safety and prosperity of the German state, eastward expansion was mandatory. Right, and if the Nazis had been able to carry out what they intended here, they would have murdered tens of millions of Slavs. But military conquest was only part of the plan. The civilian populations also had to be removed, namely Eastern European Jews and Slavs. The people of Germany suffered greatly because of their disastrous defeat in World War I and the hyperinflation that followed. The Nazis told their people that for Germany to move past that suffering and acquire the power they deserve, certain actions must be taken. Everyone standing in the way of a flourishing state must be destroyed, from Jews to Soviets. Mrs. Haas and her family fall into the idealized world promised by this vision. So a question in the chat, even the first time you step onto a porn set, does it seem normal? Well, we take our cues from other people about what's normal and what's abnormal, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, what's horrific and what's good, right? We get our hero system from other people, right? We take cues from other people. If we saw you know, a large group of people you know, running in a panic past us, in all likelihood, it'd be adaptive for us to, to join them because there's probably something horrible coming. Then within 20, 30 minutes of an otherwise abnormal situation, it, it generally starts becoming normal to you. They're peacefully living in the East with more wealth than they can ever need, unthreatened by British blockade and internal treason. Their life is proof that the actions on the other side of the wall are justifiable. For us to live in heaven, our enemies must be sent to hell. There's a striking moment towards the beginning of the movie when Rudolf Haas chastises his men for plucking lilacs from the bushes. He's very concerned about the health of the garden. 
every plant must be nurtured with the utmost care. Your immediate feeling is naturally, how the hell could he murder innocent people en masse and still care for a flower in his garden? I think the answer is because it's his garden. When societies start to believe that the prosperity of their world is being hindered by internal... Right, people care far more about their garden than about the suffering of millions of people on the other side of the world, right? We, we need to recognize the inherently tribal nature of people. ...external actors, the ends will start to justify the means very quickly. And even if the means are as hellish as imaginable, people will find ways to accept them, as we discussed earlier. Now, although the zone of interest is a study of evil and how normal people perpetrate it, the movie is not completely absent of hope. There's a few scenes shot with thermal cameras, something I've never seen before, that follow a young woman who ventures out at night to hide food for the starving prisoners. The thermal imagery can't take you out of these scenes, but I think that was the intention. This girl who lives nearby is living in a completely different world, a world in which the value of human life is not determined by race or citizenship. She puts her own world at risk so that others can find relief, the complete inverse of what we see in the... Now, this girl would not make it into the uh, Museum for Righteous Gentiles in Israel if she were paid, right? She was apparently putting apples out so that the prisoners could have some sustenance. But if, she, if for any reason she was paid for her good deeds, right, you don't, you don't get uh, listed among righteous Gentiles because it is in the interest of certain Jewish activist groups to try to portray the world as horrible as possible and to try to narrow down the number of righteous Gentiles during World War II to be as small as possible. So those Danes who risked their lives rowing Jews you know, out of Denmark to a, to a neutral country during World War II, right, they are not righteous Gentiles because they were paid for their labor. So back, I don't know, do you remember March, March 27 of 2018, had a conversation with Tan Stoffel? So he's, he's married to a Jewish woman. He operates the blog Age of Treason. Hey, I'm Luke Ford. I'm here with the Age of Treason blogger, Tan Stoffel. Uh, Tan, I, I, you've been blogging for quite a long time. Tell me about your evolution in particular on the JQ. Oh, sorry, let me mute that. Come on, guys. I'm trying to and, run a professional uh, show here. with here. Tan Stoffel, so uh, we're going to get that that uh, microphone problem taken care of and we're going to discuss the nathan kofner's critique so uh tan take it away tell me about uh tell me when you started blogging tell me about the evolution of your journey on the jq right i started in 2005 i started blogging and that was after i had uh spent about uh, 20 years maybe of uh not paying attention being fed up with politics and mainstream politics and ignoring it focusing on my career. But in 2005, I think it was uh, Hurricane Katrina that triggered me. The The racialization of that was sort of a um, Trayvon Martin experience that many people ex experienced years later. I experienced during the Katrina thing. Uh, and so I started blogging. I started, I had been talking to friends before that privately, and I just basically took it public and uh, moved through uh pretty quickly uh, neoconservative uh, thought, which attracted me at first because it seemed like a, a more serious approach to uh, politics than, than concert, plain old conservative politics. And then I ran into someone named Lawrence Oster, you might be familiar with, that might've been where I came across you. Uh, and it was really Lawrence Oster, reading Lawrence Oster that, uh, 
made me aware that there was something going on with the Jews. Oster himself was a Jew, was a convert to Christianity. But what I noticed over time with him was that he was hypersensitive to criticism of the Jews. He he indulged in it himself, but it was always from the point of view of what's good for the Jews. He he thought that the Jews, in various ways, he criticized them for not doing what was best for themselves. Um, from there, let's see, I'm just trying to run through it. There was Steve Saylor I became interested in, uh, Jared Taylor. Uh, and this is where I... I, I don't recall exactly when I came across Kevin McDonald's work, but uh, it was somewhere in there. Probably it might have been Lawrence Oster who mentioned McDonald. Um, as I mentioned in my Kaufness piece, there were several other Jews later on, years later, that um, I noticed their allergic reaction to to Kevin McDonald. That they had a a visceral negative reaction to McDonald that seemed irrational to me. But but by that point, I was already aware of the Jews and aware of uh, the harm they were causing but when it back when i was first paying attention to lawrence oster i wasn't so aware and so it probably came across to me as oh this guy is is a bad thing i shouldn't pay attention to him so it was probably years later before i really started uh that's off very slow and methodical and unemotional but then then it really becomes emotional um, as we actually reading and listening debating. to what Kevin McDonald had to say. Uh, this is about, I think it was 2007 that I came across um, Lawrence Oster uh, and started uh, over time becoming critical of him. It was probably around 2009 that I started becoming critical of the Jews explicitly. I made a post called, I think, um, committing the most mortal sin or something like that. Um, because I still understood things from a, a very politically correct point of view that I, but. I okay. So came quite heated. Maybe I'll just uh, fast forward to the last few minutes. She said, I don't believe anyone can convert to Judaism and that it, it did take me aback. Okay. So the age of treason guy, Tan Stoffel, he, he said, how come none of the, the big Jews follow you that you're following? It doesn't doesn't contain any powerful Jews domain and and you did that and so it seems okay let me try to get the time but they right. think in particular terms themselves they that's their morality is about themselves they define themselves what's good and bad in terms of themselves which is that led me to a deeper understanding of what morality actually is that you can have an individualist morality where good and bad are defined in your in terms of what's good or bad for you personally. Right. So this is the difference between principles and interests. And to me, your own people's interests should be a principle to you. But some people primarily see morality in terms of abstract principles. Other people see it in terms of concrete interests for their group. Or you can have a tribal morality like the Jews do, where good and bad are defined in and I mean, that there are some Jews who have a very strong in-group identity, but most Jews do not have a strong in-group identity. Most, most Jews you know, very much children of the Enlightenment, of the secular liberal Enlightenment perspective on life. In terms of your limited group, or you can have a universalist, you know, closer to Christianity is closer to that morality where you think in terms of universal good and bad, that, that uh, something is good or bad based on some abstract understanding 
that involves that that applies equally to everyone. So, do you believe in universal morality? No, and I don't believe in individual morality either. I I don't really uh, think in moral terms. I understand how when people struggle and talk about morality, though, I decode what they're saying by understanding it in this way I've just described. That they, I try to understand: Are they talking from a individual point of view? Maybe even without being conscious of them, of it themselves. And that's what I'm getting at with you: is when you decided to become an Orthodox Jew, was it because you had just been, you know, through hell and in being involved with porn, and there were lots of Jews involved in that, and you, like Madonna style, thought, "Oh, well, I think I'll just get into this thing that all these Jews are talking about." And that you did it because you saw it as a, a way of cleaning up your life. You describe it that way, don't you? That, that at one point some rabbi uh, advised you to like scrub all the porn stuff off of your personal domain and, and you did that. And so it seems to me like that's probably subconsciously why you uh, gravitated toward it. You saw it as a way of basically cleaning up your life. Yeah. And, and I mean, that started many years before I had anything to do with the porn industry. I, I fell in love with Jews and Judaism in the late 1980s. And, oh, and then you went into porn. I right. Backwards. Yeah. Ah, okay. And so for me, I, I first consciously met ident openly identifying Jews at UCLA in 1988. And I was blown away by how smart they were, how articulate they were, the superior quality of their family life. And I was fascinated. And at the same time, I was going through what, what turned into six years of bedridden illness. And so my life had just completely fallen apart. I was sick every day for, for six years on end. And so I was desperately looking for something to inspire me and to anchor me and to, you know, just help me get up in the morning. I, I was just trying to survive and it was my it was my passion for judaism and my passion passionate attachment to some individual jews who i met who, who i found just so impressive that enabled me to overcome those those six years of uh, chronic illness and and i'm not sure that uh, a, a darwinian approach to life would have enabled me to survive that so does it bother you at all? And this is something that when I was talking about uh, and researching Crypsis and half Jews, it uh, it occurred to me that a lot of these Jews, they complain, some of them complained about the fact that Jews tend to push away half Jews, especially the ones who's um, they're only Jewish through their father. Uh, but they don't really seem to resent the Jews for that. Not to the extent that say whites when whites try to be exclusive to the extent they are, and it's a lot less than Jews, uh, whites seem to uh, incite this deep hatred in people, you know, who aren't pure white. Because, you know, when whites say, you know, you're not white, you're, you're half something else, uh, they get very upset about it. But they don't seem to get upset with Jews in the same way, even though Jews are um, basically the more... So any group that uh, is openly disdainful of outgroups and treats them badly and tries to limit any contact with, with outgroups, doesn't even say good morning, all right, whether it's Jews or whites or 
Muslims or blacks, anyone who behaves in this obnoxious fashion is not going to be popular. So they're maybe more sneaky or quiet about it, the way they say it. But um, that never caused any resentment from you that, that you meet these Jews who basically look down their nose and, and uh, you know, uh, don't accept you because you're not really a Jew. Sure, I have I have emotions. Uh, I was even I was even emotionally affected by some of the things you said tonight. Uh, so uh, I, I hope as a white man, not as a Jew, not <laughs> as this imaginary identity you've accepted this this identifying with a group that's not your own. So the more I'm at ease with myself, all right, the less I am triggered by you know other people not accepting me. I hope it was because I said something that made you feel shame about your your duty to your own people. Uh, it, it's hard to disentangle emotions, so I, I won't try. Um, in, in what did I say that upset you? Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I, I'll, I'll admit I noticed I noticed that my, my voice cracked at one point. So I'll just admit that. You know, I really wish it hadn't. <laughs> I really wish I'd be totally beyond that. But I've got to be honest. At one point, my voice cracked, and yeah. you know, I just got to—I just got to admit that. Um, but uh, as far as uh, uh, Jews not regarding me as Jewish, so only only one woman said that to me seriously. So this is the only show, the only debate, the only conversation I've had online where I got a sore stomach. Right? That hasn't happened on any other show or any other debate. She said, I don't believe anyone can convert to Judaism. And that, it, it did take... Right, and the reason that we get a sore stomach for occasions like this is that we tighten and compress when we face a stimulus, right? Just standing and sitting, getting in and out of a chair is a stimulus, doing a live stream is a stimulus, getting criticized or attacked or undermined or feeling threatened or belittled, right? That's a significant stimulus. And when you get a significant stimulus, right, the... The common reaction is to compress and to tighten and to pull down. Now, there can be degrees of compression and tightening and pulling down, but when it becomes sufficiently tight and compressed and pulling down, all right, you're tightening and compressing, and uh, that will start to put pressure on your stomach, and that's why your stomach will start hurting because you're tightening, compressing, and pulling down as you try to deal with some painful stimulus. Take me aback, and also I kind of disliked her for it. <laughs> And I still have a very clear picture of, you know, her face. You know, I know who she is. She's prominent in the, in the Jewish community. And, and I still remember her name. So I, I have well, a... She was the only one that was honest with you. Because that's actually the predominant view amongst the Orthodox and beyond the, the ultra-Orthodox. Okay, but if that is the predominant view, then why do they invite me to their homes? I My perception, I of course... Wait, wait, let me finish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, okay, so obviously my perceptions, you know, may be somewhat removed from reality. But my experience of Orthodox Judaism is that overall I've been welcomed according to my merits. Now, I'm a pretty messed up guy in many, many ways. So whatever community I was going to join, I was going to have a lot of problems because I'm very, I have a lot of problems. But uh, Jews bring me into their homes. So I hear this critique all the time. Oh, your conversion of Judaism is imaginary. Jews don't accept you. And I've never gotten an answer to this question. Like what, what concrete example of acceptance 
do you think I've not experienced? So Jews setting me up with other Jews for, for dates, for the purposes of marriage, for, for setting me up with business opportunities, uh, bringing me into their homes for holidays, for the, for the Sabbath, uh, and trusting me with, uh, say, transporting their children or walking their, their children from one place to another or you know, looking after their, their kids at times. I mean, I, I can't think of any criteria, any objective criteria that you could point to and say, aha, here, it's obvious that you haven't been accepted in the Orthodox Jewish community. Meals, uh, Jews set me up on dates with other Jews. Uh, Jews have offered me jobs. Jews have steered me towards good doctors or good psychotherapists or good psychiatrists. or um, mm. they, have, uh, they have trusted me to drive their children to, uh, to school, to pick their children up from school. Uh, there is nothing of which I'm aware that the Jews have not, you know, trusted me with. So I'm not saying every Jew, but overall, if if you looked at my life and my participation in, in Orthodox Judaism, there's no, like, there's no area of Orthodox Judaism where you'd say, well, he clearly doesn't belong. Because, for example, one of the, the most clear signs that you're a part of a community is that they set you up. You know, it was quite a shidduch, a, a match. And, and that's happened to me repeatedly. So why would Orthodox Jews set me up on matches with women who are born Jewish if they don't accept me? It, it wouldn't make sense. Now, I'm sure some of them do not accept me. And, and much of that has to do with my own problems as a human being. But I'm sure also some of them don't accept me because I'm a convert. Yeah. Well, and also, I could be misreading reality. Like, I might be completely delusional. Who you knows? might be. I, there's one, I'm surprised, frankly, I'm surprised to hear that, but I'm glad I asked. And and I'm not uh, uh, ashamed when I'm wrong about something uh, or, or wrong in assuming something. So, uh, but there was something I noticed on, on Twitter. I don't have an account on Twitter, an active account. I have a read-only account on Twitter which enables me to create lists. And I have various lists for different topics. Uh, I follow uh, biologists and scientists in one list. And, and you see uh, what, one of my main lists, one of the main reasons I rejoined Twitter just to do this was so that I had a list of these uh, Jew, mostly Jew journalists, and I call it the echo chamber. And the funny thing about that is whenever I find a new one that I haven't followed yet and haven't added to the list, is it'll list out, you know, all of the, I know I got a live one because it'll show me the ones that I'm already following that follow that one. And what I noticed when I went to your Twitter is you've got the echo parentheses and everything, yeah, but there's no Jews following you. None of the hundreds of Jews that I'm following, all the Jewiest Jews, all the most toxic Jews on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. You haven't fooled any of them. There's Nathan Kaufness who I just followed recently and added to my list, but, uh, there's, I, I there might've been one other, but I was, I was struck by that, that there's, there's not a whole bunch of Jews that think what you're saying is, um, well, I don't want to, that's too harsh to put it, but they're, they don't seem to include you in their circle, yeah. their circle of other Jews. Like I see with, you know, it's a very tight cluster. You yeah. find one Jew journalist, you immediately find a zillion others that, and they're all following each other on Twitter. Yeah. I don't know if you, what your experience of grade school was like, but I didn't start 
school until second grade. And I quickly encountered that there was this like cool circle, you know, yes. where yeah. they, they, their parents were cool. They did cool things. They hung out with each other. And whenever I tried to join that circle, sometimes they'd be forced by, you know, parents getting together. They always let me know that I was not welcome. Yeah. And so that exclusion is like such a painful thread in my life that, that my therapist said I should call my, my memoir The Uninvited. And so what you're touching on there is, is something very real. I've, I have always been excluded by the cool crowd. Well, maybe that's why you fell in with the Jews ultimately, because as a as a race, as a tribe, that would describe the Jews. Although part of it is is just part of their parasitism. They they are so upset about exclusion. They get so you know angry about exclusion. They psychopathologize it, and anyone who tries to do it because it it doesn't serve their interests. Any group of people that excludes them, recognizes them as different, and keeps them out is basically a threat to their survival because they need a host to feed on. Uh, I don't get that sense from you personally. Uh, and I never had that problem in grade school myself. I, I saw a cool crowd. Sometimes I were part of them. Sometimes I wasn't. By the time I got to high school, I was doing my own thing. I had my own thoughts. I had a few close personal friends, but I wasn't part of any cool circle and I didn't care. In uh, 2007, I was featured in a, in a cover article of the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles and the journalist who wrote it just got so much abuse from fellow Jewish journalists who pretty much all had the attitude that this guy, Luke Ford, he is like dirt under my shoe. Like, how could you put this creep on the cover of your publication? Is that because of the expose you had done about Jews and porn? Um, I'm sure that didn't help. It was just kind of part and parcel. Like from, yeah, I mean, that was unbelievably creepy to, you know, any normal Jew. And then, I mean, other exposés I did about rabbi child molesters, like the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles was angry because I'd keep breaking these stories of scandals in the Jewish community, and then they'd be forced to go cover them. And they'd rather not do that because that just creates division and it loses, you know, advertising and it, and it just makes your life very uncomfortable to write negative things about your own community. But because I kept breaking these stories on my blog, I was forcing them to do things that they didn't want to do. And so they really hated me for it. And they, they made sure that I looked like an idiot in their uh... most hated blogger. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I remember that phrase. Okay. That's uh, from March 27, 2018, but I do want to strongly endorse uh, zone of interest, right? It's a unexpectedly powerful movie. Watching the zone of interest. And all I can say is, wow. The cinema that I was in, despite being small, was packed out, and I think every single one of us was thinking and feeling the same thing when it finished. This was such a powerful film to watch, and with it being about a horrific part of history, it didn't necessarily show us up close the brutality of what happened, but with the knowledge that we have of that time and the horrific events, it made us use our minds whilst being paired with the haunting background sound to feel the weight even more. With an ending that cuts between the 1940s and the present day, I want to discuss the meaning of that scene, and also share why I feel this film was such a powerful watch, and one of the best things that I've watched this year. Here is the Zone of Interest ending explained and movie review. Just to let you know, this video will contain spoilers. My review of the film, same time, but I think it wanted to be exactly that. 
Like I said during the intro, there were no graphic scenes or scenes that made me look away because of the brutality of the acts that were taking place, because it's just not that sort of film. But instead, it was the environment, the camp, the lack of remorse and the audio that really took the center stage with this film. You almost wanted to put your fingers in your ears rather than close your eyes. Throughout this beautiful house that the film was set in, the background noise that was constantly going on due to being positioned next to Auschwitz was the sound of people suffering, gunfire and death. Something which was haunting to watch and hear when seeing just how used to it everybody that lived there was. If it wasn't the background sounds that were chilling to listen to, it was the visuals that would be in the background. For example, the smoke billowing in the sky which was coming from the chimneys as a result of people being burned. The smoke coming from the trains which would have people crammed inside of them being taken away from their homes and arriving at the camp where they'd be put to work or be killed. It wasn't something that was in our faces, but it was constantly in the background and it's an approach that I've not really seen done before, but it was one that really worked in making it land in such a powerful way. There were so many scenes in this film which were just... You hear about some great piece of writing and what's explained is what's not there right what you expect and is not there and so the the horror in this movie just almost entirely takes place out of the screen ridiculous and showed the lack of regard for human life that they had for example when hedwig was showing her mother around and she was mentioning how the first thing that she did when she moved into the house was install central heating because it got really cold there in the winter However, whilst she was thinking and saying that, on the other side of the fence, there were thousands of people that were being forced to live in conditions where they were crammed into beds that they needed to share, with no mattress and were essentially just pieces of wood where they felt the true harshness of the bitter cold. As well as that, there was another scene where we saw that Rudolph was getting promoted and moving so he could oversee an operation of a different camp, which meant that he needed to be relocated. The original plan was for his family to go with him, However, Hedwig was furious and kicked up a fuss about how she built their family home there over the past few years and that she didn't want to leave. This attitude contrasted with the many people that were on the other side of the wall that had been taken against their will and transported from all over Europe and dropped off at these camps where they'd be killed, not having any say or a choice in the matter because they would have been killed on the spot. It was something which truly went against the grain and put it into perspective. Another scene like this was when Hedwig was showing her mother around her garden and showcasing all of the flowers that she'd been growing. At the end of the scene, there was a close-up of the flowers, and in the background, there were the noises of people suffering, screaming, and dying. Finishing with the red symbolizing blood taking over the entirety of the screen, it was these moments of pure contrast that really hit hard when watching. Another... Okay, that's uh, the zone of interest. Uh, a lot of good videos on YouTube about it. Take care. Bye-bye for now.